Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home! Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And thank you for being with us. Good evening at Our Common Ground. If you're in, come on in. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we're going to be meeting with a very Suzanne Brooks. She is an author, human rights activist, vocalist, and uh, she is um, a musician. And we're going to be sharing with you some of her very wonderful music. We're going to take a break right here and see if Suzanne, who is on another line, is having a problem getting in with us. But when we come back, we'll share with you uh, some of the very special things that we're going to be doing uh, tonight. The book is The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization, and Suzanne Brooks is the author. And uh, for, for anyone who wants to call in, the number is 347-838-9852. And after we have a very in-depth discussion about the issues of the marginalization of women of color here, we will um, be taking your calls. So thank you once again, and good evening. I do want to say to our Boston uh, listeners, uh, had a great time in bringing in the season of Juneteenth, and thank you so very much for your support of our efforts to get out the word, to get the petition done for Marissa Alexander today. It was a wonderful, wonderful 
uh, event, and uh, we're glad to have you with us as well. The experiences of women of color have challenged scholarship to rethink, activists to rethink, <laughs> human rights activists to think, rethink the relationship between race and gender for everyone. Since the 1980s, women's studies scholars have increasingly acknowledged that differences among women arise from inequalities of power and privilege. For women of color, African-American women, Latinas, Asian-American women, and Native American women, gender is part of a larger pattern of unequal social relations and how gender is experienced depends on how it intersects with other inequalities because of race. And that is what we are going to be exploring with our guest, Suzanne Brooks, the author of The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization, right after this. Woman speech delivered at the Women's Rights Convention in Ohio. Sojourner Truth spoke these words. There is a great stir about colored men getting their rights, but not a word about the colored women. And if colored men get their rights and not colored women get theirs, there will be a bad time about it. You men have been having our rights so long that you think like a slaveholder, that you own us. Tonight, at Our Common Ground, with Susan Brooks, author of The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, we'll be looking at the consequences of socioeconomic marginalization of women of color. We will also be featuring the music of our guests, Suzanne Brooks, who is a jazz musician vocalist. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. My name is 
skin is yellow My hair is long father was rich and white He forced my mother late one night What do they call me? My name is Sophronia My name is Sophronia our guest tonight, Suzanne Brooks. She's a speaker, activist, educator, social entrepreneur. She is a CEO of the International Association for Women of Color Day, the author of the book that we'll be discussing tonight, The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization, She writes poetry, short stories, musical theater, play, and women of color column in blackcommentator.com. She's a vocalist, a songwriter, and leader of her own band, The Jazz Generation, with 11 recorded CDs, 8 on CDbaby.com. She is also a multilingual administrator, teacher, organizers, specialists in civil rights, women's issues, cross-cultural communications, and English as a second language. She's a former director of a university affirmative action program, science education equity, and multicultural programs. And it is with a great honor that I introduce to you and have this discussion with Suzanne Brooks. Suzanne, thank you so very much for joining us tonight. Oh, I'm very excited about being here. Well, I'm very excited about your book. (laughs) And I love your music. It is my kind of music. It is my generation. Only my generation can understand the tone and timbre of some of the music on on the CD that we're going to be featuring tonight. And The name of the CD is Even Sad Memories Are Sweet. All right, now. (laughs) Suzanne, tell us, I mean, you have so many achievements. Give us an idea about, uh, uh, about your life, your early life, and how you got to where you are now uh, in doing so many uh, myriad of things, but most of all at the heart of it is the passion for justice. Well, when I was a little girl during, uh, I hate to say when, because since I don't admit to being over 40, um, but a while ago, <laughs> uh, my father was in the Army overseas, my mother worked for the Navy Yard, and I lived for a couple of years with my great-grandparents. This was significant. My great-grandmother was from St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, um, but she spoke Spanish. Uh, We're not really sure who her mother was, but um, we do know who her father was. Um, 
my great-grandfather was the first black lawyer in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, and he was in the midst of all kinds of civil rights activities, including battling with the Ku Klux Klan and uh, and working on behalf especially of African Americans uh, who often had no money to pay him and would pay him with a sack of potatoes or something like that. I didn't realize, um, I loved them, but I didn't realize how much impact they had on me until I was in graduate school and studying Spanish and suddenly a recall of like a hundred words a day were coming into my head and um, since then I have been fluent in Spanish so the impact is there we don't always know that it's there but the residual knowledge is there and certainly my great-grandfather's passion for justice um, rubbed off on me Uh, but there are many other influences my father is is a uh, complicated person and from Philadelphia, had a beautiful singing voice, um, came from a family of a lot of great gospel singers. Um, I didn't really know all of our ethnicity until within the last 10 or 15 years. Um, we grew up as African-American, and that's my identity, but also have a lot of Native American ancestry and didn't know that for most of my life. Um, and it's been good for me to know, because uh, I think we should know all of our history my mother's family, um, my great-grandparents on that side escaped from slavery on the Underground Railroad with the help of the Quakers. And so I always have had an affection for the Quakers and have worked for them as a babysitter in their meeting house when I was a teen and and got a scholarship from them to spend a year at Cheney State College, which they founded. And... Um, My great-grandparents started the Campbell AME Church in Media, Pennsylvania, and I lived for some years in a house that they built on Quaker land after they came out of slavery, as did many of the African-Americans that were in that area. So those are some of the myriad uh, influences. The other one I'd like to mention, though, I also have grown up both in the inner city and in the suburbs and in the small town, and um, have found a lot of things the same, uh, though more or less concrete in one place or another. um, One of my most important mentors was a heroin addict who taught me a lot about life during a time when I was homeless. Um, I have dealt with being um, coming out of a family with issues that come from the kinds of treatment that our people are given. And... um, and that has impacted me. I'm thankful that I'm not on drugs, or I'm, not, I'm thankful that I don't have those kinds of addictions. It took me a long time to get over being a codependent, and world-saving sort of crept in there. I think it's healthier now than it used to be, um, so that I focus now on the systemic issues and the institutional issues as opposed to uh, getting caught up with a lot of personal things. And, and that's a very hard thing to do. So um, it's taken a lot of work, a lot of going to school. But the other sad thing that I've learned after all of this, I have a lot of education and I've done a lot of things. Um, I have never had um, the kind of support that one might think you would get with the kinds of education and other experiences that I've had. They're just not there because they're not there for women of color in the way that they are there if you are not a person of color or if you're not a woman. 
uh, and it's been a hard um, realization. Uh, one of the books that helped me begin to think about this was Ralph Ellison's book, The Invisible Man, where he talked about the invisibility of black men in this society. And that was kind of the model for the, my book, um, to look at the invisibility of women of color, because we are as invisible as Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. We are indeed. And I found the most curious, uh, most curiously at the beginning of looking at your work, uh, was how you constructed the title of the book. Um, and I, I'd like for you to talk about how you chose the title of this book using the word constructive extermination of women of color. What does that mean to you, and, and how did it filter through in putting together this work? Okay, well, I was a police officer for seven and a half years in Philadelphia, and I uh, have been a licensed private investigator in California, and along the way have been an affirmative action officer at Penn State University and the University of Nevada in Reno. And in all of those roles, had legalistic um responsibilities. And so um, one of the terms that I became familiar with is if, for example, you work for an employer and they want to get rid of you, but they don't have a legitimate reason to do so, and they make your life holy hell until you finally quit, uh, under the law that is considered a constructive termination. Termination, yeah. Right. They they are really firing you, but they don't have grounds to do it, and they may have some illegal basis for doing it, but they do it that way thinking they're covering themselves. And what I have been looking at um, started with women of color are dying, and people think I don't mean that figuratively. I mean that literally. Women of color are dying at the highest rate from every curable disease in this country. And when you think about what does that mean, why are we dying? You know, why are half the deaths of black women in New York from domestic violence? Why isn't this ever on the news? Why is a woman of color who is raped in Iraq and her head beaten in with a gun butt, her vagina filled with Drano, why is her family told she committed suicide? And it doesn't even really make the news, and certainly not for very long. And so when I look at those kinds of things, I consider we are being exterminated constructively in a way so that we don't face it ourselves. In a way, people keep saying, well, things are getting better, you know, but things are not getting better for women of color. That is my position. Uh, we have been at the bottom of this society since before it became a nation, and we are still at the bottom we get the least benefit of education. We are dying at the highest rate from every curable disease. We get 48% of the housing foreclosures. We make up 16% of the population. So we get three times as many as all the rest of the people in the country. So to me, the job in writing this book, I'm not interested in trying to persuade uh, white men, white women, or men of color to save us. I'm interested in saying to women of color, there's no one coming to save us but ourselves. And we're not going to save ourselves unless we collaborate, 
and we're not going to save ourselves unless we understand the reality of the circumstances that we are in. And so I've written the book so that some of it is there for those who like academic things, some of it is there for those who want more casual reading or shorter pieces. And to me, it's not important where you start in the book. What I hope is that people will find something that they can connect with, that women of color can find something and can come together in groups to begin to work on strategies. And I think I've suggested a lot of strategies along the way in the book, too. You you certainly have. Um, And for those of you who are just joining us, the book is The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization, which is not really a mouthful when you look at the words. And this is essentially uh, the result of a lifetime of both activism and observation and experiences of the impact of racism and sexism and the myriad of effort to confront and overcome personal and institutional discrimination. Now, let's let's pause for a minute here, Suzanne, and let me ask you, I know that most of us can point to, we can point to efforts in this country where men of color have been the recipients of numerous efforts to somehow lift them out of the position of subordination. But it is very, very difficult to identify um, any concerted effort to address the subordination of women of color. Now, For many, especially for men, there may be some confusion. Help us bring people out of confusion about what we mean about patterns of subordination, uh, hierarchy, domination, and oppression. I mean, I think people understand oppression based on race and class but they really don't understand the bottom line of what uh, patterns of oppression which are based both on race and class and gender. Talk about that for, 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 for our audience to help bring some clarity and have them be able to walk away with an explanation about these inequalities. Um, I do want to inject, first of all, that you are so astute in understanding not only what I'm saying, but what this issue is. And and it's really important to me that I can connect with you, because I have written a yet unpublished dissertation called uh, Racism and Sexism in Higher Education, the autoethnography of an activist, and basically what I was writing about is so often I'm in the role where I'm hired to do a job, which is to get rid of the racism and sexism, but at the same time I'm being subjected to it. 
and um, I can give you a couple of examples. I, I wrote something recently and uh, had it reviewed, got a great book review, and uh, asked that the publication that I write for for without, uh, for free um, publish the review because I had a book signing coming up, and they didn't um, do it. And um, I was like irate, you know, because I'm not getting paid, and that wasn't I thought a lot to ask for. Well, they were having a they were having a party, and therefore they didn't really get around to it. And mm-hmm. I could have maybe lived with that, except that um, when they put it in in the publication, they put it in midweek, and so it was just there for a couple of days. Well, I'm I'm like, if you're really in the forefront of equality then you don't shortchange me with an excuse that you're having a good time and you didn't yeah. get around to it. And if you Because do, it's another form of marginalization. Exactly. And like and, this radio show. <laughs> and we could talk about that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> but, but you see I got told I was in media this afternoon. <laughs> okay. It's exactly. It's that kind of thing, you know. And it goes on all the time. Just recently um, as you know, the listeners may not know, I have taken the position that I, well, I used to be a Democrat and I left the Democratic Party when I got so I couldn't tell the Democrats from the Republicans. And I spent maybe 30 days in the Green Party when there weren't any people of color around and nobody but me seemed to be noticing it. So I left them. Um, however, um, I've taken the position I will not vote again for anyone that does not stand up for women of color. And I did a lot of work on behalf of Obama. I wrote many, many essays that got... And you write about that in your book. You you include those essays in your book. Yes. And, And the thing about it is I wrote to Obama before he was elected, before I started doing any work. As I do, I write my own platforms and I send it to candidates and find out if they're interested in those issues. And if they're not, I say, fine, you're not my candidate. And so I had a very lovely letter back from uh, candidate Obama making commitments to many of the things that interested me. And for that reason, I worked very hard for him, um, raising money, doing different things. Um, But a month before the election, we were taken off the website and eventually were told that we were an objectionable group, period, not to contact anybody in his family. Suddenly, we came into this other kind of category. On what basis, I have no idea. But we have not been able to have uh, the women of color and I that have been working on this have not been able to get any access to the Obama administration since um now so now when candidates write me i want to know explicitly what are you going to do for women of color and if you can't tell me anything you're going to do this is june i want something before november if you can't give me anything before november i'm not voting for you i'm not voting for people anymore unless they produce in advance i am not interested in promises and i can't tell other people what to do but i can share what i'm doing so recently, a, a member of our one of our local um, elected councils sent me some um, campaign material because she's running for office, and she's not a woman of color. And she, um, I'm sure it came from her staff, but actually this is someone to whom I had complained over the years about racism in Sacramento and sexism and the experiences of women of color. 
So I sent a letter back to her saying, I got your campaign stuff, but I'm not voting for you because you don't support women of color. So her staff wrote me on, could they get my phone number? And I said, yes. I sent on the phone number. They asked if um, I could either talk with her. She wanted to talk with me, either on the phone or in person. I said I would meet with her, and I went to her office. Well, you would think I had asked for this meeting. She asked for this meeting. Um, and what she proceeded to tell me was that she had made a list of some referrals she could give me for the complaints that I had made and, and had reminded her of. But she realized in listening to me talk that I already had done all those things. So she doesn't consider the the racism and sexism that I'm reporting to her as having anything to do with her or her job. So I told her she was a failure. And I enjoyed telling her face-to-face, but I have to say, and I was polite, and I'm not loud, and I don't use profanity. But I told her, it, fixing this society is not my job. It's her job. That's what she was elected to do. And if she can't see that, that and in fact, I had been asked by community people to apply for the job of uh, director of the Sacramento Human Rights Commission some years ago, and it was paying less than I was making at the time. But I did apply. However, when they evaluated my um, application, they hid my application for six months while they hired this other woman who had no background, uh, and I had a lot of background, and she's allegedly the friend of a state senator, and so she got the job, and not until she was in the job for six months did they tell me that I came in second. So those are, and this woman that I just went to see had the audacity to sit there and try to say, well, I know what it's like because I've had experience as a woman. And I told her, forget it. You're not a woman of color, and you're not going through that, and you're part of the problem because I've been complaining to you, and you're blowing me off. And so this is the the situation that I encounter, and if it was just me, it would be bad enough, but it's not just me. It's it's all the women like me. We have lots of education. We have lots of experience. We're technologically savvy. Every time I hear the president or somebody else mention about we need to retool, we've done all of that. We're teaching people how to do that. And yet for 15 years, I have not been able to get a full-time job because after standing up for 38 students and, and employees at Sac State, I have been effectively blackballed in the state. And I can't prove who's doing it, but I can tell you this, the first time in my life that I don't get a call back. God only knows what they have on there. Um, maybe I'm a leper or some such thing, but it's very effective. And so, I mean, I have been nearly destitute. The, sec- the deputy sec- uh, attorney general of California told me face-to-face, and it's in the deposition, that they were going to bankrupt me and run me out of California. Um, and they asked me a lot of insulting questions, like, well, if you're black, what are your parents? And did you change your race or gender and, and instructed the jury that I wasn't black enough to file a race discrimination complaint? And I have all of those things in writing, and no one will act on them in 15 mm. years. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was reading um, your book, uh, an image I was I was getting an image that helps convey how social structure also limits opportunity and represents the relationship between structure and culture and the and and last night 
as I went through one of the chapters again, I went, bam, this is, this is the scholarly work that translates Gloria Naylor's novel, The Women of Brewster Place. And for those of you who are listening who have not read the novel or seen the movie, and one of the 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 stars in the movie is Oprah Winfrey. I think it was her one of her first film projects. The characters in that story live on a dead end street that has been closed off by a brick wall, and the wall separates Brewster Place from the rest of the community. And and when I thought of this, Suzanne. The wall on Brewster Place is a powerful symbol of the way that you write about racial oppression, sexual exploitation, and class domination, and how it constrains life chances and choices for women of color in our society. The social structures which are identified and discussed in your book and are discussed in that novel are so similar and really set up this image for me of this wall. Yes, and I think I think what is so significant in what you're saying, it's a sort of like the idea, you know, sometimes people have a great idea and they think they're the only person that thought that up. And actually, great ideas often spring up concurrently in, in multiple places. And so, too, do these kinds of experiences. When Shirley Sherrod was fired from her job based on the lie of someone who distorted something she said, um, and then later people said, well, but she got her job back. No, she didn't get her job back. She was offered another job to run around the country and complain about what happened to her. She wasn't restored immediately to her job from which she should not have been dismissed. And I just recently uh, went... I just recently spent $100 I didn't have to go and see Ben Jealous face-to-face, the national president of the NACP, because for 20 years I have been communicating with presidents of the NACP, and whenever they're nearby I make sure I go so that I can talk to them in person, and they are not interested in Women of Color Day. That continues. I gave him a book, by the way, and, um but he was not comfortable with what I was talking about. And when I looked around, there was only one other black woman present at this event that, that um, cost some, what for me was a lot. And I gave her a flyer about the book, and she never came near me again. So, um, so we're de- we're dealing with a uh, a duality here. One is the 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 constructive. Uh, extermination through marginalization of women of color in the society in general, but one is also women of color face the same kind of marginalization in their own communities. You know, and I think and, and about from white the, women. The, the, and and for, from yeah, white well, women. we're gonna we're, we're gonna <laughs> talk about that because um, I, I'm a big fan of Michelle Wallace, and oh, I think that that she was right on in when she hit the scene and she was um, ostracized and yes. criticized so terribly yes. for understanding the difference between black womanness, womanism and white feminism, and we're going to talk about that. Suzanne, I'd like to take a break now 
and come back, and when we come back, uh, try to look at the major features or categories in our lives where this marginalization is taking place. I also would like people in our audience, especially men in our audience, to try to reflect upon how this kind of marginalization affects their daughters and their wives and their mothers. Um, and, and we all know that there had, that especially in the African-American community, that we really haven't come to terms. Uh, I did a series uh, of, when I was doing nightly uh, talk radio a couple of years ago. I did a series featuring black feminist men like David Icard and Mark Anthony Neal and um, uh, David, I don't think his name is David, but uh, Lemon and Byron Hurt to talk about why black men need to discover black womanism. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and our guest tonight is Suzanne Brooks. She is an activist, a human rights activist, an artist. Um, Suzanne, you've done so much. An educator, a, you're a social entrepreneur. She is the CEO and the founder of the International Association for Women of Color Day and the author of The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization, and we're going to be talking with her more after this break about the book. Thank you for being with us. My skin is tan. You're tuned in to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight is the author... Susan Brooks, the book, The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization. Thank you for being with us. This is Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. What do they call me? around you. One in four kids in the U.S. faces hunger. It's not always easy to see the signs, but in this land of plenty, there are kids that don't know where they will get their next meal. Join Share Our Strength in Food Network and take the pledge to end childhood hunger here in America by 2015. Learn how at nokidhungry.org. Their next meal could come from you.
with our guest tonight. The bottom line is that our president-elect has inherited a system that represents the most oppressive system in terms of justice in the world. And there is a difference between justice and charity. There is a difference between service and advocacy. And we are at a point where we've got to look in the mirror as John Henry Clark said, when we wake up in the morning, we've got to look in the mirror and decide whose side are we going to be on. Amen. Are we going to be advocates for trickle-down economic prosperity, or are we going to be advocates for our people? Three, four, Thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. We're talking with Suzanne Brooks about her book, Women of Color, uh, The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color. And we are going to continue this discussion, but later on in this broadcast, you'll get a chance to talk with Suzanne as well at 347-838-9852. During our break, we featured... Uh, from her CD, Ever Sad Memories Are Even Sad Memories Are Sweet. We tried to do one of one, and it didn't work too well. But the one that you heard is Might As Well Be Spring. No, to me, no, Lirio. Exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was the one that screwed up, uh, oh, Might okay. As Well Be Spring. And I really do like that. Uh, we were playing it in the house today. Uh, this morning, uh, um, and I was running through it, and I was sharing it. Uh, <laughs> Suzanne, thanks again for for being with us, and for those of you who are out there listening, thank you for being with us. If you'd like to join us in our chat room, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to your right, backslash OCG, and join in the discussion in our chat room. Suzanne, let me ask you about the various ways, the aspects of women's lives that this affects. Of course, you've 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 already referenced how marginalization really results in the death of of, of women. How black women are most likely to die from diseases that white women don't don't die from. That Latinas are more likely to die from certain diseases that black white women don't die from. Let's talk about economic marginalization. 
Oh, yes, actually, you just posted something um, that I was reading. I'd read it before, but I was glad you posted it again with the recent um, report that showed the net worth of women of color. And um, uh, for, I think, as I recall, for white women, it's like $40,000. And keeping in mind that women, all women, earn less uh, collectively than all men. So women of color earn less than men of color, though people don't always want to believe that. Uh, women of, women are earning 70 cents, 77 cents on the dollar for what men earn. However, even with that handicap, white women are have a net worth of around 40000 as I recall, where Latinas, it's $140, and for African-American women, it's, I believe, under 100 So we don't have any worth. We have no net worth. We don't have any savings. We don't have, um, you know, I always find it amazing when people talk about, oh, let's give everybody a tax break. Well, we're not paying taxes anyway for a lot of us because we're not making any money. And unless you earn a certain amount of money, there is nothing to pay taxes on. And those mm-hmm. those are the kinds of ridiculous discussions uh, and listening to people be persuaded to defend the tax breaks to the rich or that, well, I don't want anybody to tax my inheritance. What inheritance? You know. <laughs> you know? It's and, and there's another point to that, and I hope that you all are listening. There's another point, and it's one of the reasons we talk about disenfranchisement, but it is one of the reasons for which many women in our community, in the African-American community, and other communities of color are disengaged from the political. You know, we're always saying, well, 70% of the people didn't get out to vote in our community. There is a reason why that happens. First of all, they're wiping out your registration. Right. It's a matter of the state. We have a stake in other kinds of things for which we are disenfranchised as well. I just wanted to make that point. Go ahead, uh, Suzanne. Yes, well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And and the the problem is, okay, we have no political representation. We have no women of color in the United States Senate. And there's only been one woman of color, one African-American woman in the Senate for one term in the entire history of this country. And she was thrown out on her head and she was ostracized in the political community, not only by the the powers to be, but Mm -hmm. by us. Yes, yes. And so so there are no women in the Senate, no women of color Mm -hmm. in the Senate. Mm -hmm. And we... Uh, we don't have many women of color in the House of Representatives. We have less than 4% women of color in the House of Representatives of all ethnic groups. And and people divide us from each other, from our sisters and other groups. Uh, we're told, oh, Asian women, they got it made. Well, Asian women have the highest rate of suicide of all women of color, and we top the list for suicide. 
And there have only been three Asian women in the United States Congress in over the 200-some years that the country has existed, all three Japanese-American, two of them from Hawaii, and the third one is Doris Matsui, who took over her husband's seat. Other than that, no Chinese, Indian, Thai, any other kind of Asian women have ever been in the United States Congress. So how can they have a voice? How can we have a voice when we don't we're not involved in making the laws and and when we do have women of color there they get they have so much on them because they're concerned about our children they're concerned about our women they're con- but they're also concerned about our people dying in wars that we don't belong in and other issues and they cannot do everything we need more people there there are, are 20 or 22 states that still have never had women of color in their legislatures. We don't have any representation. And people are sitting back like, we have time. No, we don't have time. We are running out of time. We are literally dying, and women of color have been the carriers of the cultures, the teachers of the children, the the passers-on of the family news and legends and recipes. But if we're not alive or if we're told racism is over, sexism is over, there are no major women's organizations that have substantive financing that are run by and have adequate representation of women of color. They're not in the National Organization for Women. They're not in the American Association for University Women, which has money to support women's litigation. But did, but when I've applied to them and other women I know have applied to them in cases involving racism in universities, they say it's not their issue, that it's not universal enough. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. these, these are the kinds of responses we get. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, someone made a comment to me some some weeks back, and it's really been sticking in my brain, and that is we talk about uh, economic development in communities of color, and in the African-American community, um, we very rarely, with the exception of street markets, which happen on a weekly basis, we very rarely see women with uh, prosperous and growing businesses. We can't get capital. Uh, thank you. And, and but nobody's and, talking about that. And business is a woman's tradition. It certainly is a tradition that came down through centuries in Africa and in other continents, women in business. But here that has been wiped out. And it's Absolutely. going to stay wiped out unless people start saying something about it, you know, unless people mm-hmm. acknowledge that it's even happening. Uh, this morning I had a rather unusual experience. My doorbell rang early, and I wasn't expecting anyone. And I went to the door, and there were two children there, seven and eight years old, a brother and sister. And I'd never seen them, and they said they were looking for their mother. Um, turned out they lived down the block from me, though I didn't know it then. But my, the reason I'm mentioning this, it's so close. Um, these are children, from what I know now, there's domestic violence in the household, so their mother ran out 3 o'clock in the morning, 
and they didn't know where she went. The grandmother was in there. <laughs> grandmother speaks Spanish. The kids don't speak Spanish, and the father was there, and then he let his wife leave without her car, without her keys, in the middle of the night, and he got up and went to work and didn't care. And and so eventually I called the police because I didn't know who the children were, and they came into my house, and I'm thinking, no wonder kids get raped and and kidnapped and nobody or killed. Um, and so here, this is right here where I live. And so, and so often I have kids I'm tutoring, especially the girls, and the the one girl's mother is, uh, is in recovery or has been and I think has relapsed and the family has collapsed. So in the middle of her tutoring, it's over, and I can't reach them and they won't respond. And these are the kinds of things. You asked me what's happening along the way, the belittling of the constant belittling. If you look at any university campus in this country, uh, if they have cheerleaders, they're white. Okay, They may have a token here or there, but that's it. Um, and the the athletes, a lot of them are black, but uh, because the women they get to associate with are the cheerleaders, then there's a wall there between black and males and females on university campuses. Most of those places will not buy products for the hair of African-American women or nylons in the kinds of shades that everybody wants. Uh, and I've been places where they, like in Washington State, where they said they weren't going to do it, and where you, or in Penn State, where the community they were not interested in buying products for people of color, and they're just not interested. So I mean, we need to look at that, and we need to not be there. I'm so sick of these programs to shape people, um, to help people become an assistant dean or an assistant this. And they call it, oh, this is going to help nurture your career. It's not, because you don't get to be a dean from having been an assistant dean. You get to be a dean from having been a department head. And if you haven't been that, you're not moving up. That's just one of those endless so-called helping more like junior slave positions that we are relegated to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about uh, women of color in the so-called women's movement, the feminist movement. And also, let's talk about uh, women of color in, the, in, in some of the traditional uh, justice uh, and peace activities in, in, in our own community for a minute. <laughs> Got a minute. <laughs> yeah, there Do are you some... got a century? <laughs> because, you know, one of the things that is so apparent, for instance, we don't protest about the way in which prostitution happens in our community. Um, and there are women's organizations across this country that protest about uh prostitution in a way that makes it almost uh, class oppression because they're not worried about women who prostitute in commun- in, in inside the community. They're worried about people, women who prostitute in the downtown parts of large cities. 
I don't know if we look you, at p- political prisoners. Well, I don't and, know if you recall that Gloria Steinem years mm-hmm. ago um, was protesting against the Mustang Ranch in Reno, which is a, a world famous brothel, and um, I I think of that because there was a study done on the Mustang Ranch, and here's the absurdity of racism and sexism. The Mustang Ranch reserves some prostitutes for white men only because there are white men who don't want to use a prostitute if that prostitute has been used by men of color. But the prostitutes can be women of color. Mm-hmm. And so there are some women of color who are reserved for white men. Now, to me, this is like the ultimate insanity. It's like the people that are still trying to uh, segregate uh, graveyards. Um, we, I don't know if you know, Sacramento is now in the top five cities in the country for the trafficking in women and girls. No, I didn't know that. And think about what that means, you know. And and they're just passing new legislation in the city of Sacramento to stop homeless people from camping in public places and in private places. So the question then is, well, actually, where are they supposed to go? They're homeless, and they're not allowed to lay down anywhere. And 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 most of the homeless that there are some accommodations for their they're going to be pretty much male because the women are afraid to be in those places. And and it it's a nightmare and 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 they're being murdered, you know. Mhm. And and in one of the 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 under the uh, one of the undergirds in all of this is for instance we are talking about in our in the African American community this whole notion of the new Jim Crow and the over incarceration of African Americans. But that does not have a female face and the largest growing population in American prisons is black females and Latina females. Yes. And and while there are not so many um female guards still in institutions incarcerating men, there have always been lots of male guards in institutions incarcerating women, which has led to a lot of the rapes of women in prison by the guards. Or just a simple institutionalized sexual uh, harassment and that comes in the form of guards trading favors it's still uh, rape. I mean, I mean, it's still it's, rape. Yes, it's, absolutely. It's, I, every time I hear some store, somebody think about oh, dear old Thomas Jefferson and and the love he felt for Sally Hemings. Well, he didn't love her enough to set her free, and and so that wasn't love. She didn't have any mm-hmm, options. Mm-hmm. She was a slave. I'm there glad can't... you brought that up because I read in the New York Times just yesterday an article that was talking about. Um, uh, Councilman Barron, I think is his name, who is running for um, for a House seat in New York, out of New York City. And one of the things they pointed out 
was how troubling it was because he made a public statement that Thomas Jefferson was a pedophile. And that is one of the reasons that the Democratic Party is having problems because he made that protestation some years ago. And my first thought was, well, Thomas Jefferson was a pedophile. Yeah. Because (laughs) (laughs) what are they talking about? (laughs) But we don't think about those things. We don't think about how marginalized. I, I ran across, and it was really interesting how I ran across this, Suzanne, and you'll have to come back because we've got to keep having these conversations <laughs> because most people don't, when they're seeing marginalization and they're seeing the destruction of black women, they don't think about it in terms of destruction. For instance, what's going on uh, in all areas of our life um, that black children, uh, Mexican-American children who live in the inner cities especially, but it happens in, in small communities, are subjected to the howling and the whistling and the demonic, demonic uh, icons and the Jezebel syndrome and the whole nine yards and men of goodwill and of justice and peace and good hearts don't understand the kind of destructive forces when it becomes so institutionally accepted that young girls should be subjected to the images that have been created by a system of white supremacy. Well, then, and let me inject something about this, too. Um, when we hear about pedophilia, it is generally um, projected as though it is something that lies within the gay community and that only gay men are pedophiles and only boys are the victims. Uh, in fact, there are many, many more girls who are subjected to pedophilia than boys, and it's not limited to you know the the priests that people want to say it's just them it's not just them um and and nobody really wants to address that mhm mhm and 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 then we 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 turn around and we have all these discussions about why black girls why there's a uh are are latina girls or having babies dropping out of school doing whatever booty shaking clubbing blah 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 But one of the things that we don't reflect on is how institutional racism, sexism, and class exploitation discourage intellectual pursuits by black women and other other women of color. There's a couple of uh, real serious misunderstandings where the, the issue of teen pregnancy and also the issue of teen gangs are concerned. Uh, There really are no such thing as the teen gangs. Uh, What our people want to see that way really are gangs that are run by grown men, and Mm -hmm. they're not run by kids. And in the same way, the majority of teen girls or preteen girls that are having babies and are not married are not having those babies with teen boys. They're having those babies with adult men. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. because people want to see it as a teen problem, then those men are not held accountable for um, what is basically rape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so and, we and, think and it's who, a form of exploitation. Yes. And that exploitation leads to destruction of uh, of of women in the latter parts of their lives. Well, yes, there's something was, else, too. If I can just mm-hmm. jump in one more thing um, that bugs the heck out of me, and that is we need to understand that the, the, the eating disorders that so many women have focused on trying to be thin, in my opinion, are rooted in pedophilia. It is the, the insistence that women never look like women that they forever have the prepubescent bodies of girls. Mhm. Mhm. And and so we need to, you know, but in the same way that if you ask the average person how many continents are there, <clears throat> people give you a number and you say name them and they always name Europe. Well, Europe is not a continent. Europe is a little piece of land that's at the end of Asia. The continent mm-hmm. is Asia. There is no European continent. But we have been conditioned to that. Just as we had maps that were made that made Africa look smaller. We get into conditioning and then we accept the conditioning. In the same way that people are talking about the the prisoners in Guantanamo who have been in prison for more than 10 years without a charge, because they're not guilty of anything. They had Mm -hmm. something to charge Mm -hmm. them with, they'd have been charged. And now Mm -hmm. the reason for keeping them is, well, we kept them so long and we tortured them, so if we let them go, they'll be mad. Well, what kind of, this is, and then what do we expect from young people then in this climate? Yeah. For so many women of color, and especially black women, there is an ongoing and raging debate over whether racism or sexism has more impact on them and it's it, it's and what i think everyone in our communities need to understand that that's like asking whether it's <laughs> more painful to lose a hand or to lose a foot exactly and there's a great deal of pressure on black women, especially, mm-hmm. uh, to rank order racism and sexism. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, when um, Angela Davis uh, wrote of the frustration in her autobiography of coping with black male revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, a- including uh, Toure, uh, who... Uh, over his lifetime, I I must underscore that he grew. And one of the things is that in our communities, we've got to learn to struggle to grow in how we think about these issues. Because, and I'll say it again, it's your mother, it's your sister, it's your auntie, it's your grandmother, it is your daughter and if we do not understand how race and gender intersect in our communities we're still going to be lost we're never going to win and we need to just recently um, a political action committee contacted me 
they want to work to uh, unseat uh, Dan Lundgren, who's a, a um, representative for Congress from California. So I went and met with the woman of color that was working for this, and I said, well, I don't really like to work on just negative things, taking people down. I prefer to work on something more constructive, like putting somebody in. And um, But I met with them, and I said, I work with them, but like anybody else, I need to know where you stand on women of color. And um, unless you explicitly state that you're supporting women of color, and I don't really want to hear about, um, I don't want to really hear about the economy, and I don't want to hear about sexual rights or, you know, pregnancy and all of that, because our number one issue is racism plus sexism. So she said she'd meet with the powers that be in the group, in the pack, and they'd get back to me in a week. Well, it took them three weeks, I guess, of fighting, and they got back to me to say that they feel it is adequate that they mention women and that they mention people of color, and they see no need to mention um, women of color. So I told the woman that gave me that message she was a slave because she is a woman of color, and to accept that and then to continue to work for people who refuse to even use the words women of color, let alone address an issue, to me is an absurdity. Mm-hmm. And then we've uh, certainly got the beast of of uh, this that same kind of attitude in our community where some of us want to deny that being 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 of a particular race uh is important in the scheme of things um so we're certainly not thinking in terms of the constructive um elimination of the worth of women in our community and it's very troubling um i've got to take a break but when i come back suzanne uh i'd like uh to talk about two sections in your book that were of particular interest one is your open letter to secretary of education arnie duncan (laughs) and the department of education administrators and the other is your essay about how we're going to bring uh, uh, Barack Obama home again and and the strategies that you're suggesting that we ought to employ. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight is Suzanne Brooks. She's the author of The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization. One of the things that makes her special is not only that the book is so important for us to focus, use as a focus in looking at the problems, the history, and the and the the myriad, the dimensions of what sex, how sex and gender, how gender and race intersect, but also to look at someone who has been walking the journey for a long time. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so very much for being with us. And uh, we hope that you will stay with us. Our number is 347-838-9852. And very soon we're going to be taking your calls. Thanks for being with us. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. We demand the vote. We demand the vote. 
Hi, I'm Reverend Al Shopton. I believe in D.C. statehood. I believe in democracy for everybody. One person, one vote everywhere. We cannot be the only capital in the world that the people in the capital can participate in democracy. of women of color. Thank you for being with us. What do they call me? My name is Sophronia. My name is Sophronia.
I'm Janice Graham. I keep wishing I were somewhere else Walking down a strange new street Hearing words that I have never heard From a man I have yet to meet I'm as busy as a spider spinning daydreams No crocus or a rosebud or a robin on the wing. The music I feel so of gay. Suzanne Brooks from her CD, Even Sad the first cut of the CD. That it might as might well, as well. Spring. She's our guest today. It might Author, activist, vocalist, Suzanne Brooks. Spring. Life-saving skills. 
we have to write notes and histories and letters and observations. We don't always get to win at a given moment. But a good example, um, when I used to work for Penn State, and I made a finding of institutional racism against Penn State as their affirmative action officer. And I could have moved on to other jobs or other things if I had been willing to just resign, but I wasn't willing to do that. I was standing up for an African-American woman and some things that had happened to her, and so they fired me. Well, you know, history, as somebody else said, I think uh, maybe Castro or somebody once said, history has absolved me. Because unbeknownst to me, those issues about the children that are now on trial in Pennsylvania were going on while I was there. And while I did not know about those, the things that were troubling me that I was struggling against were the reason that I was taking the stand. And I'm glad that they fired me because it's clear I was on one side of the issues and they were on another side. And so sometimes we have to be willing to accept that. I've never been a marcher, I'm an organizer, I'm a writer, I'm I'm a teacher. I think we all have to find what we can contribute. But if we don't contribute something, we're either helping to resolve the problem or we are part of the problem. Well, we in many ways uh, become part of the problem because we haven't taken the time to really consider Uh, what the problem is, because we would rather bury our head. Now, one of of the sections of the book, you talk about schools, prisons, health care delivery, politics, employment, business, government, and environment. (laughs) And you say that none of their problems will be eliminated until racism and racism and sexism are fully admitted and fully addressed. Who should be fully addressing and who should be fully admitting? The United States government and every person who is in an elective position. I Not so long ago, there was a study done by the Secretary of Education for the state of California called Closing the Gap. And I happened to know the person who was working under him that worked on that had been a student of mine at Sac State and he sent me a copy of the report. I was appalled. The words racism do not appear anywhere. Just as a recent another study done by uh, some kind of center for social change at UC Davis, University of California, Davis, after three years of working on trying to figure out why students of color are dropping out, they came up with all of these ideas, but none of those ideas involved even saying the words out loud racism or racism plus sexism, Um, you cannot, the smartest kids drop out first because they know they're dealing with racism. People talk to them like they're dirt. The No Child Left Behind program is a scheme by which people are making money in business and, and the schools are paying $100 or $150 an hour for students to be tutored. The tutors are getting between $15 and $20 an hour. And and they're doing all the work, and um, and most of them are not even really qualified to do what they're doing because they rather get people who are cheap than get people who are qualified, and then not everybody qualified wants to work for twenty twenty two dollars an hour. I do it because I'm blackballed from other kind of employment. So, uh, but the the other side of that is the kids. 
that I've tutored have jumped two and three grade levels in reading, and, you know, they only get 15 to 20 hours a year of tutoring, and that's it. And uh, the Obama administration just made some changes, so states are going to be free to drop that program next year. So as bad as it is, it was better than nothing, and now we're headed towards having nothing. Um, There's no way that children can succeed with people who don't like them. There's no way. The kids know that. And they know the difference when you come and meet with them and you treat them like they're human beings and you talk to their parents with respect and you don't tell them, oh, your ancestors were a bunch of wild people, you know, down in in South America. Um, they were like, in, you know, in, inhuman people that did all these terrible things. And if you talk to them that way and destroy their sense of their culture, then they they feel it. I've had Hmong kids that talk so softly, I couldn't even hear them. So I didn't know what they mm-hmm. were saying. I don't know how anybody was grading them or anything. And because so, they've been drilled down into the ground. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and it's all of them. It's all of them. And the people, I, I taught in one program where the owner of the program had tutoring he was running in five different states he and his wife had been convicted well he turned state's evidence against his wife so she went to prison for doing something illegal and then he went on to run more no child left behind programs and his son was in charge of the california programs and came on site high i would say on cocaine um and i had a parent observe him because his behavior was so bizarre and I reported this in writing, and, of course, the, his father and I got into a major battle. Or they leave a tutor and a girl student, a third-grade student, in a trailer on a campus where there's no security, and they tell everybody, well, they're the last ones there. They can lock up. Well, to me, that's asking for them to be assaulted, and nobody's mm-hmm. there. But those are the things that are going on, and nobody says anything. I have told people for years we need compliance reviews of all the schools in this country, colleges, universities, K-12. Compliance review is where you demand that the government agencies that can review to see are they complying with the law, because I know they're not. Yes. You know, But yes. nobody's even looking. You know, yes. when I came to Sac State, they hadn't changed their affirmative action program in years. They hadn't. Well, you know the- what I always say about affirmative action officers: it's the job nobody wants to get done. Oh yeah, and and, and, and you get stomped on and kicked in the head when you're doing the job. Exactly, and then, um, you know, this is how this marginalization, folks. I, I hate to be picking. I, I'm not picking on men. I know I had a big argument. Well, not an argument. Uh, a zapper moment with East Coast, and I see him, and I'm so glad he came uh, and on onto the broadcast last night in another broadcast. Because one of the things that I hear you saying, I see in your book, is this whole notion that within our community we are engaging in the same kind of marginalization. Now, I'll give you an example. Today, um, I know, and I've been doing I've been doing ra- talk radio. I never I was never a DJ. I was never a station manager. I was never any of that stuff. I came directly into talk radio. That there are people out there who would rather 
listen to the voice, the opinions, and would categorize the opinion of a of a male talk show host rather than a female talk show host. And it, it doesn't even matter what you're saying. I know that there are activists, women activists out there, where even if you look at the Occupy movement, how women of color, and especially black women, have been excluded from the leadership roles in so many, not just, I'm not picking on Occupy, and I know I've got a lot of Occupy uh, fans out there, but we have to be so sensitive to this to this stuff. And I agree, and it's not, you're right, it's not only Occupy. I have written letters to the Coffee Party, to Move On, to Courage.com, to Netroot Nation, um, I, I, there's more, and um, all of them. I have said, uh, I support what you're doing, but I never see the words women of color. I never see our issues. Um, when the when the women, the same women who had been fighting Obama in favor of Hillary Clinton and had been putting out racist stuff against him, um, and, and they got to meet with him later. We didn't. Uh, but, I mean, they came together to ask Obama to establish the President's Council on Women and Girls. And they wrote to me, several of them, and they asked me if I would support it. And I said, yes, but only if we are more than pictures on a website. Only if the words women of color are there and our issue of racism plus sexism is there. And every single one of them said no. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I think we have to have a special respect for men who who are part of the leadership. And I see so many people in radio and TV who are part of the leadership of men who respect the voices, the competencies, uh, the scholarship, the, the articulation of issues from women. I think we have to be very, very careful about and considerate about how we behave in these areas. Now, Suzanne, I'd like to open up uh, our phone lines, mm-hmm. um, and our number is 347-838-9852. I would also encourage all of you to get this book. You can go to womenofcolorday.com to purchase the book. The title of the book is The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization. And I look at every every publication, every book, Suzanne, in terms of its utility. And one of the things that you provide in this book are some strategies about how we can work these issues into the work that we are doing, the liberation and justice work that we are doing in regard to the prison industrial complex, in regard to higher education, in regard to public education, in regard to, I mean, you have a, uh, you have some fantastic uh, 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 sections in this book that just speak to how we can begin to organize against this extermination. Because if you lose the spirit 
of women in our community, I just have to ask you, what you got? <laughs> what you got? Who are the people who organize the get-out-the-vote efforts in our communities? Who are the people who organize Feed the Hungry Children? Who are the people who are running the organizations that provide the neglected social services need in our community? And who are the people, hello, who go to the meetings? And if they, if their spirit is robbed, if their spirit is minimized, I mean, for instance, um if so many look at the women in our community if they go away you know if melissa harris perry for instance decides i don't want to do this anymore i don't have enough uh followers listeners blah 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 i'm i'm just saying if and she goes away how do we replace that voice we're certainly not going to replace it on ABC, NBC. We're certainly not going to replace it in our university where she's teaching women's studies or Sharahad, um, uh, Sharazad uh, Tillet, uh, Feminista, or Yvette Cornell. Uh, suppose you decide their blogs aren't good enough, and so you're going to I – mean, but, you know – Suzanne, I get so frustrated because we're not supporting anybody who's supporting us. Well, yes. Well, I'm not supporting anybody who's not supporting us. And so All right, I've, I've drawn that that's a line in the mm-hmm. dirt for me. Uh, if uh-huh. people are not willing to support women of color, then I really don't care what they support because we're at the bottom. And if we don't get lifted up, there is no democracy, there is no freedom, and and I, I was looking at the women to whom and, and men to whom I dedicated this book, and there's, I think, 51 people, um, of whom 14 or so are already dead. And and so people are dying, and if we don't do it now, we'll be dead too, and nothing yeah. will have changed. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's another issue, uh, especially in our community, and people are not paying attention, and that is, well-educated, well-trained, well-experienced professional women are living on the street. Mm-hmm. And those about of us not on the street a are A month ago, it. I read about this issue that with foreclosure, between foreclosure, divorce, and loss of job, loss of health care, we have women in our communities who have retired and they are living in poverty and below the national poverty level. Yes. And by the way, we need to, there's issues like immigration. We need to recognize in the African American community that immigration is our issue. Because if you think about it, for the most part, blacks have never been allowed to immigrate to this country in any significant numbers. I remember one five-year period where they only let five Haitians in the country. Um, you can't count the slaves, you know, 
They were not mm-hmm. immigrants. <laughs> and and when we are allowed to be uh, in a position to denigrate Latinos, who are also black people in many cases, um, and the thinking, oh, we don't want those people here. When I grew up in Philadelphia, I remember the teachers saying, oh, look at the base of the Statue of Liberty. There's a song there, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, dedicated to all the European immigrants who came. They were welcome here. They didn't come here with visas and passports. They just came. And when there was the potato famine in Ireland, they came. And when another problem in England or France or wherever, they came. And they're still coming. And they can come over from Canada, too. It is only when the people are people of color that suddenly there's a need to 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 build on our southern border, not on our northern border, what looks like the same as the Berlin Wall to me. And if you ever go to Southern California and see the signs posted on the highway, the first time I saw them, they made me sick to my stomach. They have signs that look like the deer crossing signs, but they're pictures of human beings running across the road. And they are so dehumanizing them. Hundreds of Mexican women are being killed in those American factories that are along the border, when they go to work, they're disappearing, they're being raped and murdered, and no, and the the official position is, oh, they're just prostitutes and drug addicts. It's not true. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not true. And mm-hmm. when we don't, when we, women of color in some other group, don't stand up and acknowledge the deaths and, and destruction of our sisters, we are also signaling our own death and destruction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things that I think that we have to get serious about is the whole idea of how you, me, everyone subordinates. If you are subordinating your political views, your political information, your cultural information, your cultural education, your cultural spirit, to the church or an organization or to an individual, you have to understand that subordination has its consequences and you have got to be very clear. The women of, women of color are subordinated because patterns of hierarchy, domination, and oppression exist on race, class, gender, and sexual orientation and they are built into the structure of our society. And if you participate, you are participating in the system of white supremacy. Yes. And 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 when you look at, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get people to really understand why this is important. We, you know, and there are some of you out there who argue that biological traits uh, such as race and gender, are relevant only because they're socially ranked and rewarded. That is not true. It is a social response to the to, to biological characteristics that result in inequality. And your mother, your sister, your 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 aunt, and your grandmother, and your daughters on the average, are receiving the lowest wages, holding the worst jobs, 
and are more likely to be unemployed, unmarried, and unengaged. And sexually molested. Sexually abused and and, and sexually molested because we buy into this system. I don't understand. I, I don't know if people realize that that women of color have the highest rates of infant mortality and births out of wedlock. And we are mo- more likely to live in poverty and be single mothers than our white counterparts. We're so also a, the highest number We're also the highest numbers of foster parents and in-home caregivers. And Foster parents don't even get a salary. And this is the, one of the big denials. If you're a foster parent, you're not paid. And people say, oh, yeah, they get a check. No, they don't. That's why they don't pay any income taxes on it. There's a check that covers the cost of the child. There is no payment for foster parents who provide 24-hour mm-hmm. care to children, and most of the foster parents are women of color. There's no other job mm-hmm. where people expect you to work 24 hours and you don't get paid. And you mm-hmm. must have a job if you're a foster parent or some other source of income. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that when we look at all of these political factors that we're always considering, what's happening in the banking industry, what's happening in the finance industry, what's happening in our economy, we don't understand that it hits women so much heavier because they're always already weighted over. It's almost like, you know, you guys, you got one brick. You got one brick on your neck. Let, let's, 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 I'm trying to bring it to them, Suzanne, in a way that we can see it and, and, and let it seep into our pores. But did you, I want Women to point- have two bricks on their neck. But I want to point out something, though, um, because I do address this in the book. I did not take the position, um, and it is not my position, to reform men of any color uh, or white women. It <laughs> we, is not my We ain't no. reforming nobody. No, I mean, I'm, but I'm also, huh? I'm also saying that, that I am not spending time with a blame issue. Because what I see for men of color, and I think the consequences of slavery in all its forms um, and and all that comes with it, are you can't expect slaves to be caring people. Slaves are just trying to stay alive. And, and we have such a long history of people just trying to stay alive. And that distorts relationships and makes relationships very difficult. And I think that's true on all sides. And having said that, it it also explains the sexism of those men of color who are are sexist and those white females who are racist, for that matter. All I'm saying is, to me as a woman of color and to women of color collectively – we can understand that, but we must move on in our own interest, along with those white women and men of color and white men, for that matter, who are willing to be our allies and who are willing to work with us, not just on women's issues, not just on minority issues, but to single out our issues and to put our issues on the front burner, because until we are free, no one is free. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Until we are free, no one is free. And freedom takes some real hard struggling to be free. And you have to know what chains and shackles have to be removed. I mean, one of the uh, things that I think with the DNA projects and and the human genome projects that should be apparent to everybody, there is only one race. It's a human race, and it began in Africa. If you're not African, you're not from this planet. And And yet we have... Yes, there are different cultural traditions, and those came about for different reasons, and they're not all good. And so we need to be able to examine those. I saw a group of religious leaders recently on television say something I never thought I'd hear, and it was they said that all wars begin between religions, and until religions stop warring, there, there will continue to be war. And I'm trying to get in touch with them because I want to work with them on some things. Uh, because I think that was a very profound statement coming out of religious leaders who have not typically said those things, but have typically been more into kill everybody who's not one of us and and to rationalize it. Otherwise, why would ministers and priests run around with soldiers? You know, They're never on the side of the people that are dying. They're on the side of the people who are killing and and that's always been the case so i think that there is some movement and those things give me hope but i think that we must as women of color we need to accept the fact that if we're going to survive we are going to have to lead our own survival you're absolutely right i know i've been saying and thank you all for being with us tonight uh, with Suzanne Brooks, if you've, you're just joining us. She's the author of The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, and you can purchase this book at www.womenofcolorday.com. Um, it's a book you should read, folks. And, and a, should get teachers to use it in classes and human resources people to set up their programs so that employers can stop being racist. Um, right. And those are the battles that we can do uh, individually and in small groups. Well, it certainly illuminates both racism and sexism by exposing this tangled web of the intersection. Um, Suzanne, I, I so thank you so very much. I hope that you will... Uh, come back and maybe we can <clears throat> talk about um, going through. I mean, th- this book is—it's it, a manual, and um, I hope that you can come back and we can go through some specific chapters of of the book. Uh, and thank you very much for my—I I really uh, am very proud of my library, and now I have a um, signed copy uh, of the book. And Street Press is the publisher. I Street Press. I Street Press, International Association for Women of Color Day. Um, and, and, And I thank you for this. This must have been very painful 
to have to write. It was. And and, and and I am so jealous because I can't seem uh, I can't seem as a matter of fact to to uh this week I I'm looking for a tape recorder that I can talk into cuz I write the best I write the best books in America. I I write award-winning books on the train and the minute I get in front of a keyboard I lose my swag. Um, this but it's is so important just... because you are so astute at getting the issue, and and so I'm hoping that sometime in the future we can, the people who listen to us and who support us, whether it's us together or you on your show or me doing other things, the people can begin to insist that we consider um, being speakers at events that we consider, for example, I have a constant battle to get people to hire my band, even though there's not another band in this town with 11 CDs. Um, But Mm -hmm. it's it's not the issue. And the the Mm -hmm. issue is they're determined to keep me out, and I'm determined I'm going to keep going. So I think of it as I'm a virus, and once I get a toehold, I'm never leaving. And Mm -hmm. I encourage everybody else. We don't have to cave in. And besides... Caving in is to go ahead and die. I mean, they can only kill you once. So, you know, if if people are going to make our lives miserable, they're going to do it. The less you resist, the more they will overrun you. Yes, the 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 exactly, exactly. And I'm hoping that we can um, uh, somehow get together um, at one point. Uh, to talk about a project, how we can have this as an ongoing um, uh, dialogue uh, for women. Because one of the ways, and um, Michelle, my sister wife in the chat room, is, is in, and she keeps saying it, she's the love leader uh, on the Internet. And one of the things that she keeps saying is that we have to learn to love each other love each other intensely and deeply. Uh-huh. And I'm hoping that I can get you to join me in Atlanta in October at the Spirit House Sister All Four um, uh, Black Women's Conference, and we can talk about that. We're going to do uh, a couple of shows about that. Um, let me check. I've only got about eight minutes on this broadcast, but let me check to see if there's anyone. There are a couple of people who seem to be listening by their smart devices rather than calling in, but I'm going to just check. Are you calling in to talk with Suzanne Brooks? Okay. Is this a caller to come on the air? Uh, Oh, how you Brother doing? Brock. I'm yes. good. How are you? Thank so you for well, calling. Well, well, excellent. I'm, I'm just listening to the outstanding information. And since you're pressed for time, I'll just continue to listen. Thank you, Brother Brock, and you have a good Juneteenth. Uh, right now, no doubt. <laughs> the reparations uh, so, so uh, so keep. Okay, that was Brother Brock in Philadelphia, PA, and the reparations uh, conference is being held in uh, in Cobra uh, 
next weekend. And for those of you who haven't checked your calendars, please do. I want to thank uh, Suzanne Brooks for being with us. Suzanne, so much love and and may the force be with you with all of the work that you do. And you're certainly going to come back. We're going to think oh, of yes. a project for you. And, <laughs> and for the brother from Philadelphia, I've been trying to get back to Philadelphia. I graduated from LaSalle, from West Philadelphia. I went to Temple, and I went to um, Cheney. And I have, um, even though I'm one of the ten top graduates of LaSalle in its 140 years, they won't bring me there as a speaker. They won't do Women of Color Day. I got Penn University of Penn started doing Women of Color Day in 1989, but now they won't communicate with me. So I would like to come back to Philadelphia, and uh, so I'm just putting that out there for something that you all might work on because I'm also working with Soleil Chianesu from Million Women March. Wow. You see, we have to stay on things. We can't uh we can't give let any crevices creep up. Suzanne, thank you so much and thank you for the music of your You're wonderful C D. Um the C D is Even Sad Memories Are Sweet by Suzanne Brooks. Uh got a little dance in this morning off that C D. And thank I have so promo much. videos out there too. Oh, okay. Do you have any any stuff on YouTube? Oh yes, I have pro, I have three videos on there. I have a promo oh, okay. video for the band and a, um, something I did with the Afro Uruguayans in South America and and some other stuff. Mm-hmm. I have a hundred and thirty some web pages, so people can find me. Oh Lord! <laughs> uh, and I'm worried about my 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 eight or nine. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne. Thank All right, you so wonderful. very much. Thank you been wonderful. It was very, very, just a good talk. I I love to talk with sisters who are doing things uh, that make a difference. The name of the book, again, is The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization. If you have been concerned about the deterioration and the corrosion of the black church and its traditional role of social service and civic leadership in our community, you're going to love my guest next week. He is Reverend Matthew V. Johnson, the director of Every Church a Peace Church, and he has loads to say about prosperity gospel movement and how it is destroying black people and the black church in our community. He's the author of Tragic Tragic Vision of African American Religion, which I am currently reading, and he also has written a novel, The Cicada's Song. It's a novel by Matthew V. Johnson. He is the pastor of um, uh, Greater Atlantic uh, Atlanta area church, but he has a lot of criticism about the forces that bring destruction. And I know that all of you out there have been talking about just what is happening to the role of the church. 
in the issues of civil and human rights in our community and how the prosperity gospel is tapping off bit by bit the pieces of resources that we need in our community. Also, his novel, The Cicada's Song, it's a hauntingly beautiful, deeply Southern African-American journey into the soul. And I really recommend this book. I'm I'm halfway through, and I'm also already thinking, oh, don't let it be over, don't let it be over. Um, he is um, narrating um, an unnamed, deeply resonant spirituality that permeated African-American life during Jim Crow. It is the Cicada's Song. You know those little... C-I-C-A-D-A, those little things that run around. I'm Janice Graham, and don't forget that you can join us at TruthWorks Network, which is sponsored by Our Common Ground. On Monday, it is Global Village Voices with Peter E. Matthews at 9 p.m. On Tuesday, it's Power Views, where we reload the truth. And this week, we're going to be looking at African-American perspectives about the Occupy movement across the country. On Wednesday and Thursday, it's Swagger Talk Radio with LDX featuring Don X on Swagger Down Wednesday and Information Man on Swagger Up Thursdays. On Fridays, it's the Man of All Seasons. Advanced politics drilling down on what's happening in the political world in this country. The Alpha Show, 10 p.m. And all of them will be available to you at blogtalkradio.com backslash to the left, to the right. Truthworks. Truthworks is where the truth is spoken more than once. Thank you so very much for being with us. We've enjoyed your exchange in our chat room, and we hope that you'll join us at TruthWorks Network and right here at Our Common Ground next week with Reverend Matthew V. Johnson. I'm Janice Graham. Have a good Juneteenth. My skin is brown. My manner is tough. Thank you for being here at Our Common Ground tonight with our guest, Suzanne Brooks. Buy the book, The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization. I'm sure you enjoyed the featuring of her music tonight. The CD is Even Sad Memories Are Sweet, all by Suzanne Brooks.
We want to thank her so much for being with us and thank you for being with us. Join us each Saturday, 10 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves, broadcasting brave, bold, and black. Common Ground, Saturdays, 10 p.m.